It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the killer diseases of our day is arteriosclerosis, also known as the hardening of the arteries. Uh, This is caused by plaque buildup in the artery that hardens and restricts the flow of blood. And, um, you know, it's ultimately caused by a diet of too much fat and cholesterol. And if it's not treated, it can kill you. But if you catch it early, you can treat it by just changing your diet and you know eating healthy instead of unhealthy. And if you catch it late, then you're going to have to uh, have a heart bypass surgery in order to to treat this. But you know many people are, are dealing with this dangerous disease of the hardness of their arteries and. Uh, something that leads to death, something that's very dangerous, something you should take seriously and treat it. And the reason I bring this up is because, you know what, we have a similar problem spiritually. Uh, We struggle with having hard hearts against God and His Word. And one of the main causes of this hard-heartedness that you and I often suffer with is unbelief. Unbelief in God, unbelief in what His Word reveals about Him and tells us. And when left untreated, a hard heart of unbelief, it brings a lot of spiritual problems into our life. Now, each one of us um, had a hard heart, a very hard heart, before we came to the point in our life where we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 36, 26 tells us, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You know, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, not only did he give you a new spirit, a spirit now living within you, but he took that heart of stone, that hard-heartedness that you and I had, and he put the soft heart of flesh. Now, unfortunately, over time, you and I can become hard-hearted again. And one of the causes of Christians becoming hard-hearted is really a bad spiritual diet. You know, just like you know, your arteries can harden because you have a bad physical diet of too much fat and cholesterol, you and I can be spiritually hard-hearted because we have a bad spiritual diet of the things of this world. You know, we're, we're feeding ourselves of the things of this world instead of the spiritual nutrients of the things of God and the things of His Word. And one of the reasons that we're feeding ourselves the junk of this world instead of the spiritual things of God's Word is because we ultimately have an unbelief. There's a hardness that has come and brought us to that place. You see, the world does not believe in God. It feeds and uh, it opposes the things of God. And so when you feed on the things of this world, it leads us to an unbelief in God. And so one of the best ways to treat that is just change your diet. You know, stop uh, feeding on the things of the world that is opposed to God and start feeding on the Word of God. You know, we're told in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing 
and hearing by the Word of God. You know, if you want to go from that place of unbelief and hardness of heart to a place of belief and faith, well, the most important thing you can do is what Romans tells us here. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And so you've got to be constantly taking in the Word of God, which increases your belief in God and um, diminishes that unbelief and that hardness of heart. Now, the reason I started by sharing about this hard heart of unbelief is because that is what the author of Hebrews is going to be dealing with this morning in the latter part here of chapter 3. He's going to be addressing this issue of people who have a hard heart of unbelief, and he's going to give a warning to his readers about this. Now, if you remember back in chapter 2, I mentioned that we see a pattern throughout the, the gospel, or the, through the book of Hebrews, sorry. Uh, it's a pattern that starts by teaching a, a certain doctrine, typically a doctrine about how much greater Jesus is than other things. We saw how much greater Jesus is than prophets, how much greater Jesus is than angels, how much greater Jesus is than Moses. And after that wonderful doctrinal teaching, the author then turns to a practical warning. Jesus is greater than angels and prophets. And then in chapter two, he says, now here's this warning, do not drift away from Jesus. And then he goes on to share more reasons why Jesus is greater than angels and then why he's greater than Moses. And now he comes back to another warning for us this morning. And the warning this morning is a warning against having a heart of unbelief that is hard. Now, before the author gives this warning of not having a a heart of unbelief, he quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And this is a psalm that is dealing with the hard-hearted Israelites when God delivered them from Egypt and they were in the wilderness. And this psalm is encouraging people, don't be like the hard-hearted Israelites. And so the author of Hebrews is taking this psalm and using this powerful example of people who were hard-hearted people who were hard-hearted because of unbelief, people who didn't deal with their hard hearts and the consequences that came to their life because of it. And so he starts with that example and then he jumps right into this warning. Hey guys, you know your ancestors. You know what they were guilty of. You know the hard hearts that they had. You know the consequences they suffered because of it. Then the warning, don't you be hard-hearted as well. And after doing that and giving that warning, the author is also going to share with us three practical ways that you and I can ultimately deal with our hard hearts. Three practical things that we can do to help us overcome and protect us from becoming hard-hearted. And the reality is, you know, all of us struggle with different levels of being hard-hearted, with different levels of unbelief in different areas of our life. And so what we're going to look at this morning, I think, is a great warning for each one of us, a great exhortation for us, and just a great practical challenge for how we can overcome these areas of hard-hearted unbelief in our life. So we're going to start by looking at this quote from Psalm 95, and we're going to do a little bit of a a quick history lesson uh, of pretty much the the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt into the wilderness and what their problem really was in all of that. And so let's start uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 is quoting Psalm 95, says this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It is in the rebellion, in the day of trial, in the wilderness, 
For where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years, therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now I think it's interesting to know, before the author quotes Psalm 95, 7-11, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... And this is just a wonderful reminder of what the author is saying is David who wrote Psalm 95, he's not really the real author. The ultimate author is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who inspired David to write these words. And that's something that we believe about the entire Bible, because the Bible tells us that, that all scripture is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit inspired all of it. And so it's just a good reminder as we look at this, we don't just think, well, well, David wrote in Psalm 95. No, no, no. The Spirit of God wrote these words for you and for me for a warning to us that we might not be hard-hearted. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of the trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. You know, if you look through Scripture and you think, what group of people would have the most reason to believe in God? The most reason to not harden their heart against God? The most reason to really just be convinced in the power of God to provide for them and to protect them? I mean, there's really not a a group that would have more reason than those who were rescued from slavery in Egypt and then went into the promised land. And let's just do a quick history lesson of what they saw and what they experienced that should have brought them to this place of confidence, of belief in God's provision, in God's protection, in God's miraculous power, because they saw it so vividly and so powerfully over and over again. I mean, it started with these ten plagues. And I want you to know the ten plagues were necessary. Why? Because of Pharaoh's hard heart. Moses says, God's got a message, Pharaoh, let my people go. No. And it was a a no of unbelief. Who is this God? You know, we got plenty of gods here in Egypt. Who's this God that I should let the people go for him? He didn't believe in God, and so plague number one, and number two, and number three. And each time, Pharaoh, his hard heart keeps him from letting the nation of Israel go, and they should just watch. Look what happens to hard-hearted people. And Each plague comes finally till it hits home, literally, for Pharaoh. It doesn't seem like he's really overly concerned about the suffering of everybody in his kingdom, but the tenth plague is the death of the firstborn. And his own son dies, and that's the final straw for him. And then he says, all right, you can go. And they see this. And then they go, and they're journeying, and they're all excited, and they're finally free, and they come to the Red Sea, and there's nowhere to go, and behind them is this army of Egyptians who have decided, we made a mistake, let's go and get these people back, and they're freaking out, and what does God do? He parts the Red Sea, they walk through it, and not only that, this army comes after them. And as the army gets into the Red Sea, God closes the water down, drowns all of them, and so literally... This whole group that they were so afraid of, that kept them in bondage for so many years, they're gone. They have no ability now to hurt them anymore. 
Well, as they continue in the journey, they see miracle after miracle of God providing. They don't have water. He provides it. They don't have food. He gives them manna from heaven. He gives them quail. He gives them his law. He makes a covenant with them. But you know what? Throughout it all, they continued grumbling and complaining. Oh, what are we going to drink? What are we going to eat? You know, what is God going to do with this and that? And oh, wasn't it so nice in Egypt? We just see this constant complaining that leads to unbelief, that leads to this hard-heartedness that's growing more and more in the nation of Israel. But then God brings them to Kadesh Barnea. It borders the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land that God said, I'm going to give to you guys. And they go, okay, well, we're going to send 12 spies into the land, and we wanted to see, you know, what kind of land is it? God's promised it's a land full of milk and honey. You know, is this the, the flourishing land that he has said? But also, is this a land that we can take? You know, are there people in there that would fight us to a point where we couldn't be victorious? And so these 12 spies go in, and they come back with this report. They all agree, yes, man, the land is flowing with milk and honey. You know, the grapes are huge. What it grows is amazing. It's a fertile land, but it's also a land with giants. It's a land with fortified cities. It's a land that's going to be very difficult for us to take. And two of the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb, they say, you know what? It doesn't matter. God can give this to us. Just like God defeated the Egyptians, he can defeat these people. We should go trusting him, trusting that he can deliver this land into our hands. But the other ten, they disagreed. Oh, we can't go in here. These giants will kill us. This is too difficult. God couldn't give us this land. We shouldn't trust God to do this. And sadly, the nation of Israel listened to the ten spies instead of the two. Not believing in God. Not believing that he could give them the promised land. And you would think with everything they saw in Egypt, I mean, Egypt was the superpower at that time, and God literally obliterates their army, sends ten plagues against them. You would think they would recognize, hey, if he could do that to Egypt, nobody in Canaan stands a chance. I don't care how big they are. I don't care how big their armies are. I don't care how fortified their cities are. God can do it. But they didn't learn from all that they had seen, and they had been growing hard-hearted because of unbelief that God could provide water or food or other things. And now they get to the point where God says, here's the promised land. And they're not willing to follow him, not willing to trust him. And it actually gets so bad, their response was, let's stone Moses, appoint a new leader who will take us back to Egypt. I mean, the craziness of that, you were just in slavery. God delivers you. You say, let's kill the leader that God appointed, appoint someone else and go back. Well, God comes down in his presence and stops them. As you can imagine, he is not happy. He threatens to wipe all of them out except for Moses and just to start a whole new nation with Moses. But Moses intercedes for the nation of Israel. He asks God to forgive them for their sin, and God does forgive them. Specifically says that he forgives them for their sin, but you know what? There is a consequence that they had for the hard-heartedness that they had of unbelief. And I want to read what God says to Moses in Numbers 14, 20 through 23, it says this. Moses has just asked for God to forgive them. The Lord replies, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt, will ever see it. 
So here's this group. Moses says, will you forgive them? God says, yeah, I'll forgive them. But there's a consequence to this continual testing of me ten times, to this continual hard-heartedness of unbelief. And the consequence is none of this generation who did not believe in me is going in the promised land. And what happens is they leave that spot right next to the border of the promised land and they go back into the wilderness and they wander 40 years until every single adult who was a part of that generation dies and then God takes the next generation, the generation who wasn't hardened because of unbelief, and he takes them into the promised land. This is why in Psalm 95, which the author of Hebrews is quoting, we're told, hey, don't Harden your heart as in the rebellion in the day of the trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. Remember, ten times. Tried me and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God is angry with the hard-hearted unbelief of people, period. Especially people who have seen so much that they should have known better, that they should have believed in Him. They refused to trust in God. They refused to trust in what He promised them. And the consequence was they were not able to enter the promised land, or as the author of Hebrews speaks of it, enter the rest of God in the promised land. Now, I think it's important here to note that the promised land does not represent heaven. You know, in the promised land, there are wars to fight. In the promised land, there were enemies to conquer. In the promised land, there are a lot of things that, fortunately, heaven doesn't have for us. We're not fighting battles in heaven. We don't have enemies that we're fighting. We don't have death. We don't have any of that stuff. We don't have sin, sadness, tears. So, you know, the promised land is not a a representation of heaven. Actually, in Psalm 95 uh, and in Hebrews, they they call the promised land this place of rest, and we're going to see this morning, they, they speak of it as something that you can possess today here on this earth. Not something in the future in heaven, that no, no, you have it now. This rest of God is yours today. You can possess it today. So it's not speaking of heaven. You know, really what it's representing is really the best life there is for a believer in God. And the best life there is for a believer in God is someone who believes in the promises of God and is willing to be led by Jesus and submit their life fully to Jesus. Now remember this warning, it's being written to believers. Believers who are struggling in this area, struggling with saying, you know what, I've maybe becoming hard-hearted because of lack of unbelief. And I'm thinking, you know, all this persecution that's coming against me, maybe it's best to go back to Judaism. But I want you to realize it's not saying, hey, you know what, if you're struggling with a hard heart of unbelief, guess what? You're about to lose your salvation. You're not going to get to go to heaven. It's saying you're missing out on the best life that God has for you, this life of rest and peace and joy and fulfillment because you submit fully to him. And that's something that we have to understand. It's this battle that we're facing. The enemy wants to lie to us, wants to convince us in this world and what this world has to offer. Oh, that's going to provide the most uh, enjoyment. It's going to provide the most peace, the most fulfillment. But it's not true. The best life possible is a life completely submitted to Jesus. That's the life that brings rest. That's the life that brings fulfillment. That's the life that brings peace. That's the life that brings joy. And this is something that the initial readers of this letter were were, were considering leaving 
and they would lose out, giving up what they have in Jesus, being led by him to something far inferior to that. Warren Wearsby wrote this, The heart of every problem is a problem in the heart. The people of Israel erred in their hearts, which means that their uh, hearts wandered from God and his word. They also had evil hearts of unbelief. They did not believe that God would give them victory in Canaan. They had seen God perform great signs in Egypt, yet they doubted he was adequate for the challenge of Canaan. When a person has an erring heart and a disbelieving heart, the result will always be a hard heart. This is a heart that is insensitive to the word and work of God. So hard was the heart of Israel that the people even wanted to return to Egypt. Imagine wanting to exchange their freedom under God for slavery in Egypt. Of course, all this history spoke to the hearts of the readers of this letter because they were in danger of going back themselves. Believers who doubt God's word and rebel against him do not miss heaven, but they do miss out on the blessings of their inheritance today, and they must suffer the chastening of God. The enemy is constantly wanting us to settle for something far less than what God has for us. You know, once he loses us, you know, once we go from his kingdom of darkness to God's kingdom of light, once we accept Jesus Christ, he wants us to, to have the least amount of impact on this world as possible, to, to live a life that settles for, you know, really not living much for God, but living more for this world and not really attaining what God ultimately wants not doing what God has for us, not making the impact that God could do if we would really actually just submit to Him, be led by Him, and allow Him to work in and through our lives. The reason we settle often is because we become hard-hearted. And we become hard-hearted when we stop believing certain things that God's Word says. Perhaps it's a, a sin that, that you don't want to believe is a sin, and so you're like, well, I don't really believe that's a sin. I can continue to indulge in that. And so you kind of become hard-hearted towards that because you don't believe what God's Word says about it. Or maybe there's something else in God's Word about a relationship or, or about this or that. And you're like, I don't really like what that says, and so I'm not going to believe that. And what it leads is now I'm going to be hard-hearted to it, and I'm not going to obey it. I'm not going to follow it. And typically, it's not that we as Christians just say, well, I don't believe anything in the Bible. No, there's particular things that we don't like, particular things that, that, that we don't want to submit to and accept and hold on to, and it's those things that we struggle with. For example, God tells us, you know what, if you want the best marriage possible, I can tell you how it's done. I created marriage. I know what will work. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your husbands. If you'll do that, you're going to have an amazing, wonderful marriage. And then we hear the world, which is a very different message. We should only love or respect those who earn it. Or maybe even for, you know, a lot of the messes now, you know, oh, don't, don't, don't give your husband, you know, respect. It'll just go to his head and he'll, he'll treat you poorly. Or, you know, you just need to love yourself. Take care of yourself. That's what's most important. And we start to hear these things which contradict what God's word says. And sometimes you say, you know what? I, I like this message better from the world. I don't really like the message that God's word says. So in this area, I'm just not going to really believe that. And I'm going to get hardened to that. I'm not going to follow that. 
And the consequence is, man, the fruitful, joy-filled, blessed marriage I could have, I don't. Because I'm not willing to believe and follow and obey the Word of God in this area of my life. So when we stop following what the Word of God says, when we stop trusting that God's Word is truly what is best for us, we start following what the world says, start trusting the world's way is a better way, it demonstrates a lack of belief in God, a lack of belief in His Word, and the result of that is that our heart starts to harden towards those things. And it robs us. It robs us of living a life led by Jesus and fully submitted to Jesus because I'm like, well, I'm submitted in this area and in this area, but not this one. Because I don't like what the Bible says about this area, so I'm going to stay hardened here and I'm just missing out. There's a part of my life that's missing what God would want to do in and through me in that. So the author gives this example of the Israelites who had this hard heart of unbelief which kept them from entering the promised land. And now he's going to give this very clear warning in verse 12. He says this, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Here's quite a stern warning that the author gives to his initial readers and to us today. I've just given you the example of what a hard heart does. Look what happened to the nation of Israel. They were kept from the promised land because of their hard heart of unbelief. And then right after this example, you guys need to beware, brethren. Beware. This word, uh, Greek word translated beware means to take heed, discern, examine, and look into intently. So the author is saying, hey, I want you to beware, to examine yourself. And notice the thing that we should be examining, lest there be in any of you, like there was with the Israelites in the wilderness, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Guys, check your heart. That's what the author is saying. You need to really have a heart check. Where are you at? Are you hard-hearted? Are there areas of your life that's hard-hearted? Are you not believing everything that you should? You need to do a self-examination. Look at your life. And something we need to understand is a heart of unbelief that causes us to depart from the living God. Notice the author calls it an evil heart. We need to recognize this is a strong term, but it's a real reality. Hard-heartedness of unbelief, it's sinful. It's evil. And it's because of that, it's something that we should never be okay with. It's just something that we never just step back and say, you know what? Hey, I have so many areas where I believe, so many areas where my heart is soft. It's okay that this one is still hard. It's okay that this area still lacks belief. Just like we should never be content with saying, well, you know what? Uh, I don't sin in this way, this way, and this way, so it's okay that I continue in this sin. No, there should never be a contentment to say, you know what, here is an area of unbelief, of hardness, of total rebellion against God in this area, and I'm okay with it. But you know what, I think we struggle with that. I know there have been times in my life, if I'm honest with myself, I look back and I can say, you know what, I was okay with this area of unbelief. I was okay with this area where I was hard, and I know I was okay with it because I didn't try to do anything to stop it. It was actually a willful decision. I don't really like the fact that God's telling me no here because I want it to be yes. And so I'm just going to say, I'm going to do it anyway. 
I willfully chose. I was okay with having a hard heart of unbelief. I didn't deal with it because of it. I continued to allow those things in my life. And all I saw were the negative consequences that we see here with the nation of Israel that I'm sure you have experienced as well. When we pursue the sinful things of this world, God says, don't do it. Why? Because he's trying to spoil our fun? No, don't do it because it's going to destroy you. Don't do it because it has negative things in your life. I'm trying as a loving father to help you steer clear of this because I want what's best for you and you're avoiding what's best for something inferior, for something counterfeit. The enemy's trying to convince you, oh, this is going to be just as good. No, it's not. God finally got my attention, helped me to see I can't be okay with hard-heartedness. I can't be okay with unbelief. i got to deal with these things. I also learned this is not a one-time thing. It'd be nice. All right, Lord, forgive me. I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to have to struggle with hard-heartedness or unbelief. This is a regular thing, and this is why the author is warning us, you guys need to examine your heart. Regularly, you got to really think and look, where am I at? How am I doing? Is my heart hard to any area? Am I struggling with believing God, His commands, His promises, His word in any area of my life? And I think one of the best ways to determine that, think, well, well, how do I test that? How do I know? Just look at what you're obeying. Right, that's probably the best way that you can really just be honest and sincere, not just what you intellectually know, but what you're actually doing. You, you'll know if you're hard-hearted. You'll know if you're not uh, believing things by the basis of whether or not you're obeying them. Because the bottom line is, if there are promises that God gives that you truly believe, you're going to trust in them. If there are commands that God give that you truly believe, you're going to obey them. And so you can look. When I'm disobedient, I can be clear. I am hardened here. I do not believe here like I should. It's just obvious because I'm not doing anything with that. And if that's the place where you're at and you recognize I have unbelief that's demonstrated in disobedience, I encourage you this morning, get right. Repent. Ask the Lord to help you to change to turn away from it. Israel's hard heart of unbelief, you know, they didn't deal with it. It didn't just start off with, oh, we're not going in the promised land. It was this perpetual thing. Each problem that came, you know, instead of believing God, they didn't. Every time they complained, every time they grumbled, every time it was like, I don't believe God, and it just brought more callousness, more hardness to their heart. And time and time, the Bible says 10 different times, they get to the point now where they're about to enter the promised land, and they're so hard-hearted they're not willing to trust in God, and it robs them of the promised land. Well, now that the author of Hebrews has given the example and given this warning, he doesn't just leave us, well, okay, hope you guys do better. Fortunately, he gives us some uh, practical things. Here's what you can do to protect you from being hard-hearted and full of unbelief. We're going to look at three practical things. And because all of us are susceptible to being hard-hearted, these are great things for us to not only understand, but to put into practice for ourselves. The first thing we see in verse 13, it says this, But exhort one another daily what's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Notice here what the author says, Exhort one another daily. 
The Greek word here translated exhort means to come alongside of someone in order to encourage, build up, and help. Now notice who the author is telling us to exhort, who it is that we should come alongside to to build up, encourage, and help. And also notice how often we should do this. We're told exhort one another, speaking of other believers, and how often should we do it? Daily. Exhort one another daily. Notice he also says, while it's called today. Meaning start exhorting one another today. Don't waste time in neglecting this. Do it today. So the author is saying, hey, if you want to protect yourself from becoming hard-hearted, there's something you need. You need other believers in your life who are going to exhort you. Other believers who are going to come alongside you to encourage you, to build you up, and to help you. But you know what? You also need to be that believer who's willing to come alongside others to encourage them and to help them and to build them up and need to do it on a daily basis. You see, we're all tempted to be hardened. We're all tempted with unbelief on a daily basis. And so we need to be surrounded by people who are going to encourage us to overcome that on a daily basis. Now, guess what? The only way this is even possible is if if we are in fellowship with other believers on a daily basis. When you're not in fellowship with other believers, this is impossible to do. You can't be encouraged by people that aren't in your life, and you can't be an encouragement to people that aren't in your life. And so you have to be in fellowship, but the problem is many Christians, that they isolate themselves from other believers. And in my experience personally, and also as I've seen with others, I think we actually are more prone to isolate when we're going through problems. That's the time we actually need help most. We're struggling, we're dealing with issues of sin, and we isolate ourselves instead of surrounding ourselves with other believers. You know, many Christians, they only spend time with other believers on a time like right now, Sunday morning. That's when I gather with other believers, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, none in my life, Sunday, I get together with them. But you know what? That's not daily. So I got six days a week where I'm all alone, trying to fight this battle myself, trying to overcome these things myself. And I got one day, and it's not really one day, it's just a couple hours of that day where I surround myself with other believers. But you know what? Most of that time spent singing and listening, and so I don't really actually connect super much because I don't get to talk a lot with someone, and I feel like that's enough. If I just have that time, that's going to be sufficient. But it's not. We need people in our lives that we're open to, that we're transparent with, that we can share with, that we can be able to receive encouragement and help, and that we can do that for them. And to realize you don't have to fight this battle on your own. I think it's interesting, a recent survey done in America found that 70% of church-going people said this, you can be a good Christian without attending church. That's a mind-boggling statistic. Yeah, yeah, you don't need church to be a good Christian. I just do it at home by myself. I don't need the fellowship. I don't need to serve. I don't need to encourage or be encouraged. No, that's not possible. We need one another. But you know what? The enemy wants you to think you don't. The Bible tells us he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you know what? He loves to see that one lone person. Because they're easy prey. You're in a group. You've got all these people fighting together. When he comes, it's hard to take out someone. But you're all alone, all by yourself. No help, no encouragement. You're easy prey. And so he wants to encourage you. He wants to make you think, oh, just 
you don't need church. You don't need other believers. You know, just you and God on your own, that's fine. You'll be okay. And then soon you find yourself getting defeated and wondering why that is. So if you want to protect yourself from being hard-hearted, you want to grow spiritually, you need to regularly be in fellowship with other believers with the purpose of being exhorted by them and exhorting them. You know, lots of times we hang out, we talk about sports, we talk about the weather, we talk about things that really don't have that much importance in life in comparison to Jesus and the Bible and what he's doing in our life. And so it's not just, I'm with people who are Christians and we're talking about, you know, the last game that we watched. Well, that's not really going to be exhorting you. We need to get time really encouraging each other with what's going on in our lives and how we can pray for each other, how we can build each other up. Now, there's a warning here. He says, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You need one another because if you don't, you're more prone to being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And I think this is something that's so important to recognize, that term deceitfulness of sin, because that's what it is. The sin is deceitful. It tries to convince us of something that's a lie. Convince us that, oh, if you do this, it'll be so great. If you do this, it'll be so wonderful for you. Oh, it's not going to have consequences. There's not going to be any negative impact. Indulge it. It's deceitful. It's a lie. And you know what? When we give in to that, we don't stop believing. We just stop believing what's true and start believing what's false. We're going to believe in something, and we're going to believe that lie that, oh, no, this is better for me than what God has. And so in this particular area, I'm going to indulge this thing believing that that's better and it's going to harden me to what is actually best for me and it's going to hurt my life because of it. Matthew Henry wrote this, If Christians do not exhort one another daily, they will be in danger of being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There's a great deal of deceitfulness in sin. It appears fair, but is filthy. It appears pleasant, but is pernicious. It promises much, but performs nothing. The deceitfulness of sin is of a hardening nature to the soul. One sin allowed prepares for another. Every act of sin confirms the habit. Sinning against conscience is the way to sear the conscience, and therefore it should be the great concern of everyone to exhort himself and others to beware of sin. So the first thing that you and I can practically do if we're serious of saying, you know what, I don't want to be someone who's hard-hearted and unbelieving against the things of God. Number one, exhort other believers and allow them to exhort you on a daily basis. And it's only going to happen is if you have believers in your life. And so if you say, you know what, I don't have people I'm regularly uh, investing in and allowing to invest in me. Well, Make that change. you got people here in this fellowship that I'm sure would be happy to engage in a relationship with you of mutual benefit of lifting each other up more than just on a Sunday. The second thing we can practically do to protect ourselves from being hard-hearted is in verse 14. It says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Here the author challenges us to hold the beginning of our confidence in Jesus steadfast to the end. Now here's one of the problems that the recipients of this letter were struggling with. They were not willing to continue to hold on to this confidence in Jesus steadfast to the end because of persecution. 
Persecution had hit their life and their confidence of Jesus has been thwarted and now they're really not so confident in him anymore and now they're kind of looking and putting their confidence towards Judaism and going back to that and they've lost their confidence in Jesus and really it's because they're looking and they're seeing all these things coming against them, fellow believers being imprisoned and killed and persecuted for following Jesus and it's caused them to lose the confidence in Jesus that they once had. And one of the ways that you gain that confidence back is you need to look back to what Jesus has done. Look back at what Jesus has done to remind you of all the reasons you should have confidence in him. Of all that he's already accomplished for us should give us plenty of reason to be confident in his love for us, in his ability to do whatever it is that we need done for us. He already dealt with our sin. He already conquered death for us. Hey, we can look at him and we can see, you know, no matter what I face, I can be confident that Jesus is up to the task of helping me through because of what I already see in the past, because of what he's already accomplished. When I look back, it should give me confidence for the present and also for the future. But here's the problem that we suffer with. I think it's the same problem that the Hebrews suffered with. They were looking at the problem in front of them. Their eyes were focused on the persecution. For us, our eyes get focused, especially in 2020, on all these things that keep coming, all the problems that are coming. And when our eyes are focused on the problem, oftentimes we lose sight of what we need to be seeing, which is the solution in Jesus. And so we got to take a moment to say, I'm going to get my eyes off of the problem, and I'm going to put my eyes back on Jesus. I'm going to look back to him and look at back all his faithfulness, look at all he's done for me to give me confidence that I can get through this next thing in front of me, that I can get through what's coming in the future, that I don't have to say, you know, maybe I should, should go to something else. Maybe I should depart from Jesus because, man, this persecution's so bad or this life is so hard or these difficulties that I face are, are so difficult. I need to keep my focus on Jesus and regularly remind myself of those things. You know, imagine if when the nation of Israel came to Kadesh Barnea, send the 12 spies, they see giants in the land, if they would have just looked back and said, hey, well, wait a second, remember Egypt? It wasn't that long ago. Remember the 10 plagues? Remember when you know, the Red Sea was open? Remember that whole army getting swallowed up and drowning? Remember how God protected us and took care of us? We can do this. It's not because we're so great and we have this mighty army. God is mighty. He can give us anything. I don't care if this land has giants or not. If they would have looked back, it could have given them the confidence they needed to move forward, but they didn't. They were just looking at what was coming. <laughs> we can't handle giants. We can't handle fortified cities. We don't trust that God can do it. And too often, we're the same way. We get so focused on what we're going through and don't look back on what God's already done that we lose confidence in who He is, and it tends to lead us away from Him instead of towards Him. So the second thing we can practically do to protect ourselves from being hard-hearted is regularly look back to what Jesus has done for you in the past so you can have confidence in Him in the present and the future. You know, at the end of our message, we're going to do something that Jesus tells us to do. He says, you know what? Remember me through communion. And what is He talking about? I want you to always look back to the sacrifice I gave for you on the cross. Why? Because it helps you. It helps you to have this great confidence in who I am and what I've done for you. And he knows we forget. He knows that we lose sight. He knows that we get focused on the wrong things. And so it's, I want you to regularly, as you gather together, look back and remember me. Get your focus back on me 
so that you can be confident as you move forward in life, knowing that I am capable of getting you through whatever it is you face. The third thing we can practically do to protect ourselves from becoming hard-hearted is in verses 15 through 19. It says this, While it said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, who corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Once again, the author quotes Psalm 95, verse 7. He also he quoted Psalm 95, 7 through 11, and now he brings up verse 7 once again. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I think it's interesting that in these short amount of verses, the author brings up this word today three different times. And the point of each time is, you know what? Don't put off to tomorrow what you can do right now. And that's a problem that we have. We're a generation of procrastinators. You know, yeah, this sounds real nice. Yeah, maybe I should deal with my hard heart. You know, maybe I do have some unbelief, but I can get, you know, maybe next Sunday I'll deal with that. Maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe next year. And the challenge here from the Holy Spirit is today, deal with this. Don't put it off anymore. Don't neglect it anymore. Don't go through more suffering and consequence and hardship because you're not willing to deal with the things that you should be dealing with right now, today. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, notice what the author says here. Do not harden your hearts, meaning, guess what? You get to make a choice. It's a choice. You get to choose whether you will have a hard heart or choose whether you're going to have a soft heart. The choice is up to you. The choice is up to me. But you know, we kind of think a lot of times, well, the reason I have a hard heart is because of what the person did to me. They caused that in me. The circumstance caused my hard heart. That's not what the Bible's saying. It's like, yeah, there are circumstances that are more difficult than others, but the bottom line is we make choices. I can choose to be hard-hearted or I can choose not to be hard-hearted, but the reality is it's a choice that you and I make. Now notice the author connects this challenge to not harden your heart with hearing the voice of God. So the author is saying, hey, one of the best things to help you to make the right choice to help you to choose, I want to be a soft-hearted person than a hard-hearted person. He says, well, here's what you need. You need to hear the voice of God. Hearing the voice of God is going to be one of the best things to help you to choose to be soft-hearted. Now, typically, God does not audibly speak to us. Very few times through Scripture do we have God audibly speaking to anyone. The most common way that God speaks is through His Word. He's revealed it to us. He speaks to us through it. And that's how you hear His voice. You see, part of unbelief, which leads to having a hard heart, it just stems from ignorance to God's Word. It stems from being ignorant of what God speaks to us through His Word. And so when you don't take the time to study God's Word, to hear from it, it leads to unbelief. As I mentioned at the beginning of this message, Romans 10, 17 says, So, by, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If you want to grow in faith, if you want to grow in belief in God, well, guess what? You need to hear the Word of God. That's such a vital thing in order for that to happen. You need to regularly 
Study it yourself. You need to listen to others teach it as well. And the more you hear the voice of God through the Word of God, the more it's going to protect you from unbelief, protect you from making a foolish decision to harden your heart when instead you should soften. Now, hearing the Word of God, it's a great starting point, but it cannot stop there. And in my experience as a pastor, I see lots of people, and that's where it is. They hear it. They have it in their mind. They can even memorize it and quote it for you, but that's as far as it goes. I've heard a lot of the Word of God, and now I'm good. Now I'm spiritual. Now that's, that's all I need to do with it. But that is not the truth. I'm sure you've experienced that in your own life. I know I've experienced that in my own life. And the Israelites are a great example of why it can't just stop with hearing the Word of God, because they heard it. And you guess what? They're one of the few groups in the Bible that actually heard it audibly. We're told from Mount Sinai, God spoke audibly to the nation of Israel. They heard the voice of God speak like none of us do. So they heard the voice of God, not only audibly from God, but through Moses as well. And so they heard plenty, but that wasn't enough to stop them from unbelief and hardness of heart. Notice what we're told in verses 16 through 19. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Those that God delivered out of the nation of Israel, they heard the voice of God, but notice they still rebelled against God. So just hearing the voice of God, it wasn't enough. And verses 18 and 19 tell us two things that they should have added to the hearing of the voice of God that they never did. And if they would have added these two things, I think things would have been different for them, but they didn't add these things. And notice what they are. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. The Israelites who heard the voice of God, the important word of God, they did not connect these two very important truths to what they heard. And those two things are believing it and obeying it. When you study the Bible, or like in this morning when you're listening to someone else teach you the Bible, the first thing you must do is believe what it says. The reason believing what you read is so important is because if you don't believe it, you're most likely not going to obey it. If you don't believe what God's Word is saying in a particular area, you're not going to put that into practice. You're not going to apply that to your life. For example, if you don't believe that what the Bible says about parenting, that you should train up your child in the way that they should go, that it's your responsibility as a parent, not the responsibility of children's ministry workers to take uh, and invest in and raise up your children in spiritual ways, if you don't really believe that, which I know a lot of people in the church don't, I know a lot of people that just say, here, I'm passing this responsibility off. Children's ministry worker, do a good job with my kid. You know, their soul's in your hand. No, it's not supposed to be in their hand. It's supposed to be in your hand as a parent. The Bible says you're the one responsible for that. But if you don't believe that, guess what? You're not going to do anything with it. You're not going to take that challenge and be like, oh, train up my child in the way it should go. You mean, oh, I mean the, the pastor should train up my child and the children's ministry worker should train up my child. No, you should do it. We're there to help but we're not to take that responsibility from you. But if you don't believe it, you're not going to follow it. James 1.22 gives us a good challenge. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
deceiving yourselves. A lot of Christians are hearers only. And you know what? They think they're really spiritual because of how much the Bible they hear, how much the Bible they know. I've been going to church 25 years. I've heard every message there is. I know so much. I could quote this, that, and the next thing. I'm so spiritual. But you know what? What you hear and what you know, that's not what makes you spiritual. It's what you do with what you hear and what you know that makes you spiritual. If all you do is hear it and it's in your mind, you do nothing with it, that doesn't show spiritual maturity. That shows a great uh, lack of spiritual maturity, that spiritual immaturity, that you have all this information, all this knowledge of what God's Word says, but you're not doing much with it. So it's not all this knowledge that I have in my head. It's am I obeying it? Am I actually doing something with it? That is what truly makes me spiritually mature. Not the ability to quote a verse, but the ability to do what the verse actually says. A.W. Tozer wrote this, The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. Those are opposite sides of the same coin. So the third thing we can practically do to protect ourselves from becoming hard-hearted is hear God's word, believe it, and then obey it. Hear it, believe what it says, and do it. Put it into practice. I mean, that should be the mindset of every time you open the Bible to study, not just, I want to acquire more information. Oh, I want to be you know, more knowledgeable of what the Bible says. If that's the only reason you're studying it, you miss the point. It's not just to acquire information. It's I want, to, I want to read it. I want to understand it and believe it. But then I want to do it. I want to apply it. I want to see my life changed by it. Now, I hope you note that all three of these things that we practically do to protect ourselves from being hard-hearted and unbelieving, really all of them come back to God's Word. You see, one of the most effective ways to exhort other believers, allow them to exhort you on a daily basis, is by encouraging them through the Word of God. What has God been teaching you? What have you been learning? What is it that God's Word says that you can build them up with? You know, so much of the encouragement, if I just give my opinion that's a worldly-based opinion, that's not encouraging, that's not helpful. It's only what comes from God's Word that's ultimately going to be of that benefit to another believer. And so really, so much of that encouragement, if it's happening right, is centered and founded on the Word of God. When you regularly look back to what Jesus has done for you in the past so you can be confident in Him in the present and the future, you know what? Almost all that information is coming from God's Word. Now, you can look at practical examples in your own life of you know, what He did here and how He provided there and maybe something miraculous or His salvation in your life or whatever it may be. But you know what? Most of it is I can look at the Word of God and I can see who Jesus is and all that He did, and it just gives me great confidence in my present and my future that he is able to take care of my needs. He is able to do what I need for him. And obviously, hearing God's word, believing it and obeying it, comes back to the word of God as well. But you know what? The most important thing for us to believe that God's word tells us, and the word of God is very clear on this, there's lots of messages, there's lots of encouragements, but there's one message that's more important than all, because it's the one message that leads to eternal life. The belief in what Jesus Christ has done for us, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, that he took the judgment that we deserve and he paid that price so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could have a relationship with God, so that we could not have to suffer eternity in hell, but could go to heaven. That is the most important thing for us to understand and believe and accept. But you know what? There's something important for us to obey as well. Jesus tells us, I want you to remember my sacrifice. 
I want you to remember the cross, remember what I did on a regular basis by partaking of communion together. That the bread or cracker, it's a representation of the body of Jesus that was crucified for us, that that juice is representing his blood that was shed for us. And he's like, I just want you to look back. I want you to regularly remember me and what I did for you because it's so important if you're going to have confidence in me and confidence in me, especially in a time like 2020 when so much is coming against us and we're thinking, man, can God help me? Yes. Does God love me? Yes. Is God able to get me past this? Yes. Well, how do I know? Look back to the cross. Look back to what he's accomplished. And that's what we're going to take time to do together right now. If you didn't grab a communion cup when you came in, um, we're going to partake of communion together. So if you could just raise your hand, we'll make sure uh, you have one. If you didn't get one, everybody has one. Good. Um, I'm going to ask you just to hold on to that. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And as the worship team leads us in a song of worship and we prepare ourselves for communion, you know, I really want to encourage you, if there's been something in your life where you just haven't dealt with, you're hard-hearted, it's a, a, a lack of belief in what God's doing, then I want to encourage you, don't just partake of communion without dealing with that. You know, that's something that I want to encourage you to repent of, something I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to forgive you of, and say, God, you know what, I don't want to stay in this place or in this particular area, I don't believe. In this particular area, I'm staying hard-hearted. I'm continuing this sin. Lord, today I want to be free. Today I want to repent of that, and I want things to change in my life. And so as we take this time just to sing this song, I just want to encourage you, and even with that verse that was repeated twice, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so let's get right with God right now if you haven't done that, and we're going to uh, take a time to worship the Lord.